Well, go ahead and take your seats and also take your Bibles out and turn to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. While you guys are turning there, I just want to say, number one, thank you so much to our brother Marty for bringing the word last week. Uh, several people have told me that the, the sermon began with a very clear description of what Marty was going to do, and, and it sounded maybe more of, a, uh, of an academic uh, lecture. Of, he was trying to give an understanding of how to study the Bible and, and kind of how we preach the Bible and how we preach the text, and so it was uh, the W's as he was going through. And, and then a couple of you mentioned, all of a sudden there was this turn in the sermon that just went straight after our hearts. And that's what our brother Marty does so well. He does it in the pulpit so well. He does it in our Sunday school hour so well as we're diving back into biblical interpretation. So thank you, Marty, for enabling us to love Jesus more because of your preparation and your preaching of the Word of God. And uh, secondly, I want to say that we missed you guys so much last Sunday. Uh, It is good to get away. Uh, We were able to be with another church in Idaho, which was a blessing for us. It's good to be able to get away. I was able to bring the word uh, with this other church, and it was so much fun, and we love this other church. This church is very near and dear to our hearts. We pray for them often. We know a lot of people who are at that church, but it's good to get away to realize what we have here, and uh, just the flight home uh, prepping for Sunday's sermon, just realizing when, I, when I'm preparing for a sermon, uh, your, your faces are in my mind. I, I think of who I'm preaching to. I think of, of who is in our church, who is in our church family. And so your, your names pop up, your faces pop up. I have uh, the, the membership list right next to my computer in my office, and I'm praying through it, and I'm reading through it. And, and every time uh, your face pops up in my memory, I just smile. I just smile. I have such a deep affection for you. I love you so much. And so it's so good to be back home uh, with you. Well, uh, one day I was showing my son, uh, all of my kids, uh, I was showing all of my kids a video of, uh, it was kind of a National Geographic video about Yosemite, um, uh, Half Dome, El Cap, uh, just beautiful, beautiful scenery. Those of you who have been to our house know we don't have a, a, a television. We have a little projector that shoots onto our wall, so it makes our wall just become a TV screen. So I shot an image of uh, El Capitan up on this wall, just this huge image. And I just said, isn't this amazing? Look at how beautiful this is. And Ethan, my son, who some of you pointed out, for some reason, he's always the one that, that shows up in the sermon illustrations and analogies, and he is. Uh, Ethan goes, I know, it's so cool. It's so beautiful. It's amazing. And I thought like he got the grandeur and the majesty of just seeing the sun shoot off of El Capitan right at this perfect time in the morning. I, I thought he saw it. And he gets up on the couch and he goes, look, a billy goat. <laughs> And I just thought, how did you miss, like, first of all, how did you see that? Like, it was this, I don't even, we couldn't confirm if it was a goat, because it was such a tiny little speck. A little background, I had told him that I had been to Israel when I was in college, 
and that when I was in Israel, the program is called uh, the Ibex program, and the Ibex is an actual animal in Israel that I saw several times. It's this rock mountain goat that can literally uh, shove its hooves into the side of a mountain and kind of jut out without falling off, and it can just kind of walk that way. So I was describing how cool this goat is. And so I think in his mind, he thought, I'm looking at that goat. I'm seeing there's a big rock mountain here. I'm looking at that goat. And I said, no, son, that's not what, I don't even see the belly goat. Just I'm talking about how beautiful, look at how big this is, how gorgeous this is. I think that sometimes we as evangelicals with the word of God, and especially in our circles in, in studying the Bible, in Bible study together, I think we have the danger of doing what my son did, of seeing this enormous, grandiose picture and focusing on such a tiny detail that we miss the majesty of what's surrounding it. We do that when we study the Bible. Sometimes it becomes even uh, like a badge of honor to, to figure out how long you can stay in one verse, right? Like we've done 36 weeks in John 1, 1. Like that makes you more spiritually mature somehow. I don't think it does. And I think sometimes in spending so much time on one specific issue, we drill down so deeply into it. And it's important to go deep into it, but we lose the majesty of the scope around us. We lose, what book are we even in? What's the point of what's even happening here? We lose that. I say that because I, I think that that might have even happened with our study already in Revelation. Uh, we needed to go deeply into these churches. We had to go deeply into these seven churches, the seven letters to these seven churches, Revelation 2 and 3. We began studying them in October. So it's been several months. We, we spent a, about uh, two sermons on every church. So we started diving deeply into it. And I think it was necessary. I think it was important. I think we see things by diving deeply into it that we wouldn't see if we just do it in one fell swoop. But we have to remember that these, these words were written down on a scroll or in parchment in a little booklet, and they were given to all of these churches, to these seven different churches. John makes seven different copies, and he gives them to the seven different churches. And they would read them from start to finish in a Lord's Day, on a Lord's Day, in a, in a service on the Lord's Day. They'd read them, and that's the tone of what Jesus is trying to say. Now, maybe they go back and they, they dive deeper into it, but... They would just read from start to finish. And every church got every other church's message, right? It wasn't just, here's a section to Laodicea. It was, to Laodicea, you get Ephesus, uh, you get Smyrna, you get Philadelphia, you get all of their letters as well. So if you're sitting in Smyrna in the church and you receive the scroll and the pastor stands up and he says, we have received a scroll from the Apostle John written by the Lord Jesus himself to us the revelation of Christ. Let's just listen to it as it's read from the beginning to the end. No chapters, no verses back then. Just listen to it as it's read. So they would have heard a tone when it came to these seven churches of what Jesus loves to see in his church, what he desires for his church, what he hates to see in his church, what he's condemning them about his churches, and the promises to those who will fight and overcome to the end. So what I want us to do is step back for just a few weeks. I don't want to leave chapter 2 and 3 yet because I think we need to get the tones of these two chapters that are so crucial. 
We began, when we studied this, we began by talking about how this should inform the, the DNA of our church. Uh, what Jesus is saying, these are, the, these are the epistles of Christ to his church, and these words should inform what we value, what we're cautious about, what we, we have our antenna up to make sure these things aren't happening, and what we're fighting for together. And so I, I want to go back just for three weeks and study just three different themes. It's almost a, a systematic approach, if you will, to these seven letters, just to get the tone of what is it that Jesus is saying to the church universal as a whole? Because we've gone so specific into each letter that maybe, perhaps, we're staring at the billy goat and we're missing the entirety of what God wants us to see. So to that end, let me pray and then we'll dive in together. Father, we want to walk away seeing what you want us to see. We want to uh, do exactly what every letter ends with. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We want to hear. We don't want to walk away with a greater understanding of the, the city of Laodicea or the city of Philadelphia and miss uh, the tone of what you are trying to communicate to those churches and to our church as well because all of the things that we see specifically in these churches, in these seven letters, they are universally problems for churches of every age. So, Father, we ask you to do something in our hearts today, and especially in the life of our church, that we would slow down this morning and see the tone of what it is that you criticize these seven churches for. And that we would be aware of it, that we would, we would ask serious questions of our own heart and of our own church to make sure that we don't go down this road, to figure out if we're already going down this road. And God, I pray next week that as we come back together, we would see what you commend about your churches and what we aspire to be as a church, as a church that you would commend us for the things that we do, for the, the way that we act, for the love that we have. And Father, I pray as we end with the last sermon that we would see the promises to the overcomer, that we would see all of these letters end with beautiful promises. There's a day coming when the fight is over, when faith becomes sight. So Father, give us faith now. We believe, help our unbelief. We love you. Help us in the places in our hearts where we don't love you or we're fighting to love you. Help us to fight this morning. We, we pray like, like Samuel said, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. We want to hear. And we pray what we pray every Sunday. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law so that we would treasure and adore Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. So a, a bit more of a systematic approach this morning that we're going to take just four main criticisms that I believe you can pull out of these seven letters, four main tones of criticisms from Christ against these churches. 
We'll go through each of them. And, and again, this is going to be a, a different morning because we're not necessarily expositing the word together. We've done that work already. So we're kind of going back in review. And what I want to do is more pastorally address these concerns that Christ has for his church and figure out, are they starting in our own hearts? Are they working their way out in our own church? And just kind of shepherd uh, each other together and make sure we hear Christ clearly and his criticism and condemnation of these seven churches, where, where it would fit, where it would show up in the seven churches. So the first criticism, we could label it this way, uh, traditionalism. Traditionalism. Another way you could put it, you could put it in parentheses, just nominal Christianity. One of the things that Jesus criticizes his church for is nominal Christianity. You could also write down, this is primarily seen in the church in Sardis. You remember Sardis, chapter 3, verse 1. Sardis had the reputation for being this huge, vibrant church. Uh, Jesus says, you have a name, you have a reputation, and yet you're dead. So you have a name, but you're dead. That meant you have a name as being alive. You look like you're this incredible, vibrant, growing, huge church, but on the inside, you're actually dead. They have all the formality of what a church, quote-unquote, does, but they have no affections or vitality or passion. Traditionalism is just going through the motions. And Jesus condemns a few churches in this list of seven churches for just going through motions, just doing what you do as a Christian, looking good on the outside, but being dead on the inside. As we heard from one commentator, it's like going to a museum and seeing a bunch of stuffed animals in their natural habitats. Everything looks normal, but we know that it's fake, it's dead. So too, the, the church is in danger of death when it adopts this sense of traditionalism. It adopts this sense of nominal Christianity. We will just go through the motions, we'll just do what Christians do, but there's no depth inside of your heart, a love for Christ, a, a vibrant walk with Him outside of Sunday mornings. So how do we know if we're in danger of traditionalism? I just want to ask some questions. I want to bring up some maybe uh, shepherding pastoral questions, comments, and we'll take this away from here and just kind of uh, let our souls and our, our hearts marinate in these questions to figure out where are we in these different criticisms. So question number one, do you care more about pleasing man than pleasing God? Do you care more about pleasing man, making the world around you happy, or making God happy? We saw this in our study of 1 Thessalonians last week. Uh, Paul says we were not living to, to please man. We were living to please God. What about you? Do you live to please man? If you do, then you're not going to really care what God thinks, and therefore all of the things that you do in the name of Christianity, they're going to be done for people to see, for people to react, for people to understand that you have some sense of a walk with the Lord. But if you don't have any desire internally to follow Christ, if you don't want to please God and honor Him, then you have no relationship with Him. You're just doing whatever you're doing to make others happy. I'm reading my Bible so that the small group that I'm in will see that I read my Bible and will think that I'm a Christian. This is nominal Christianity. A second question, what are your deepest affections? What are your deepest affections? What are they for? What are they most concerned about? Are they concerned about the things that the world would be concerned about or are they concerned about spiritual things? Do you love what the world loves? 
If you, were to be, if you were to be able to open up your heart and just lay out a list of the things that you have the greatest affection for, what, what makes you happy, what satisfies your soul, what gives you joy, if you were to list that out and then take a non-believer and open their heart and put a list of their heart, of their affections, what brings them the greatest joy, what brings them satisfaction, would they look the same? If they do, then maybe on the outside you would look different, but on the inside you're just... You're, you're dead man's bones, as Jesus would say to the Pharisee. You look good on the outside, but on the inside, you're dead. A third question. Are you satisfied with where you are spiritually? Are you satisfied with where you are spiritually? This is uh, Philippians. You can write down Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Paul says, brothers, I don't regard myself as lay, having laid hold of this yet. But one thing I do, I forget what lies behind, I reach forward to what lies ahead, and I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I am not content. This is that spiritual discontentment. This is godly discontentment. I'm not happy with where I'm at. I want to grow. It would be like me saying to my wife, you know, our marriage is amazing, and therefore we don't ever have to talk again. We've gotten to an amazing place in our relationship. We did it. Whatever it is, we've done it. We're there. We don't have to talk ever again. Um, Are you content with where you are in your relationship with the Lord? I think this is why so often Christians who begin this vibrant relationship with the Lord, you see this in Mark chapter 4 with the parable of the soils. You have four different soils. One of them just out and out rejects Christ. I don't think anyone in this room just out and out rejects Christ because I don't think you would be here. I don't think you'd be here if you just said, I think this is all a joke and a sham. I don't, I'm not a part of this. So you're probably not that first soil that just says, forget God. But the next two soils, they receive the word, some of them even with great joy, and they begin to sprout some fruit. They begin to give some evidence, but then things happen, whether it's trials, whether it's sin, whether it's suffering, whether it's temptation, things happen that choke out the word and make it so that you stop bearing fruit. Why does that happen? It happens because your roots stop growing. In your relationship with the Lord, your roots just stop growing. Hey, I'm, I'm happy with where we are. I'm a Christian. I'm content with my relationship with Christ. I don't need to do anything else. We don't need to talk anymore, God. And then you drift away, your fruit stops growing, and you prove to never have truly been saved in the beginning. A fourth question regarding traditionalism. Do you... Let others serve as you watch from the sidelines. Do you let others serve as you watch from the sidelines? Now, I don't think that this necessarily applies very easily in our own church because everybody's involved in doing something at our church. That's one of the things I love about our church family. Everybody has their hand in some ministry doing something. But I think we need to say this because the more that God would grow our church numerically, the more that this will become an issue for us. Where, oh, we have a guy who does evangelism, right? We have an evangelism guy. We have a prayer guy. If you need prayer, go talk to the prayer guy. If you need evangelism help, go talk to the evangelism. Just programized religion. We've got a guy that does that. We've got somebody that heads that up. Programized religion means that we just sit on the sidelines and let other people who are spiritually mature and the quote-unquote professional Christians, they do the jobs and we just get to watch them. I know several churches that it kind of becomes that 80-20 rule, right? 20, uh, 80% of the work is being done by 20% of the people. 
where you start, these elite people just get up in leadership and then they do all the work and everybody just watches. Now, again, I don't think that's where our church is now, but I think that's how you grow in traditionalism. That's how you walk down the path of traditionalism, this programized religion. Work is good. Serving is good. Remember, work happened. Work was given by God to Adam before the fall, right? Work was given by God to Adam. I think video games happened after the fall, right? (laughs) Work was given before the fall. No video games before the fall. Then the fall happens, and along with the piece of fruit comes a PlayStation controller, right? (laughs) Just laziness. Just sit on the sideline and watch other people. That's how you slowly grow stagnant in your relationship with the Lord. A fifth and final question for traditionalism. What do you think about the things of the Lord? How do you view the things of the Lord? Do they seem pointless? When you hear somebody giving a testimony, do you go, oh yeah, we've heard that before? Or does it excite your heart that you see a miracle in front of you? Regeneration having taken place in somebody's heart. What about the Lord's Supper? I think Smyrna, the church in Smyrna, absolutely, or uh, the church in Sardis, rather, absolutely took the Lord's Supper. They, they maybe took it every single Sunday, faithfully taking this external action of traditionalism. But it had lost its meaning. Have the things of the Lord lost their meaning to you? How often do you pray on your own? How often do you live out what we do on a Sunday morning on your own throughout the week? I think Jesus would say, as a general tone to all of these letters, or to all these churches in all of these letters, I think he would say, beware of traditionalism. Beware of being Christian in name only, but nothing else is different. The second criticism that I think summarizes uh, several of these churches is religious tolerance. Religious tolerance. So we've got traditionalism, and then secondly, religious tolerance. Religious tolerance. This is Pergamum. If you go back to chapter 2, verse 12, you remember uh, in Pergamum, Jesus says, verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. You hold fast my name, even to the point of death, right? This, this man named Antipas who died, tradition tells us that he died uh, uh, being burned alive in this bronze bowl that had been fashioned. He was put inside of it. It was welded together and a fire was lit under it and he died by being burned alive. He didn't deny the faith. But, verse 14, the few things that Jesus has against them is that they hold to the teaching of Balaam. They hold, verse 15, to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And then in Thyatira, they hold to the teachings of that woman Jezebel, who was also involved in immorality and idolatry. Religious tolerance. You've got the Balaamites, you've got the Nicolaitans, you've got those who follow Jezebel. Immorality, idolatry, And then the Nicolaitans was this sense of antinomianism. It was legalism had pressed so hard in on these people that they just said, you know what, forget following any rules. I just get to live in grace, quote unquote. I just get to do whatever I want and God will cover it. So how do we know if we're at risk in the area of religious tolerance? We've got traditionalism. What about religious tolerance? A couple questions for our hearts. Question number one, do you let sanctification become marginalized in your life? 
Do you let sanctification become marginalized in your life? Do, do you let it become optional? Is it a secondary issue for you? This happens a lot in churches that love the gospel because they focus on justification and they focus on it so much that sanctification becomes this separate issue. And you start to separate two things that are inseparable. Justification and sanctification work together. And if you just say justification alone, we don't have to worry about sanctification or growth in godliness or progress in holiness. I'm saved and I don't need to worry about any of those things. You're trying to separate two things that are inseparable. Churches like this will just say, you know what, let's make sure everybody gets saved. And when they're saved, let's make sure that we don't impose any standard of holiness upon them. I don't want to impose any level of holiness on them. Sometimes this is a backlash against legalism that they've come from. Maybe a church has a legalistic background, so they try to go the other way. We're not going to talk about rules at all. Well, the Bible's filled with rules. The Bible's filled with things that we do. Now, we never do things to get saved, but if we are saved, then we're going to live differently. And some of the most legalistic churches end up having just some of the most wicked people because it becomes traditionalism. They just go through motions, they keep the rules, but on the inside, their heart has not changed. So can I ask the question to us, how hard are you pursuing holiness? How hard are you pursuing holiness? How much do you see sin in your own life and how much do you fight against it? Do you hate your sin? Do you allow other people to help show you your sin? I think we're at risk to become religiously tolerant if sanctification just becomes a secondary issue. You know, we'll work on growth and godliness later. We don't need to focus on that now. We will start to walk down the path. Remember, Balaam just taught, you know, if you want to, uh, uh, taught Balak, if you want the nation of Israel to fall away, have them intermarry with foreign wives, have them be involved in sexual immorality, and they'll start worshiping foreign gods. That's how you do it. A second question. How theologically discerning are you? How theologically discerning are you? Religious tolerance will creep into a church if we do not have the theological discernment to say, no, that's not right, that's incorrect. So how theologically discerning are you? And if you say, I'm not that discerning, but I really want to grow in discernment, praise God, that's what we're all about. But we all need to make sure that we're aware. We need to be Bereans. So whatever is said from this pulpit, I am not infallible. Marty's not infallible. Sergio's not infallible. We are not inerrant preachers. This book is inerrant. This book is infallible. This book has no errors, has no mess-ups. Just like Marty was talking about this morning, there's nothing wrong in this book. But the communication of it, I might emphasize something that's incorrect. I might say something that's totally wrong. And that's why you need to be Bereans, Acts chapter 17, who take what I say and judge it against the Word of God. And I think that we do that well as a church. Now let's grow together in that. Would you be able to tell if a doctrine or a teaching was false or not? Do you know the standard by which we judge teaching? And if you don't, then your door is wide open to anything coming in, to any false teaching coming in and making its way not only in your life, but then into our church's life. And we need to be careful. We talked about this a lot with these several churches that struggle with this. We need to be careful that this does not become um, we are better than other people. This does not become a, a lack of grace in our church. We need to have compassion. We, we talked about this um, General, General Patton who just said, as he was watching the, the army fight, he just said, oh, I love the fight. We should not have that. That's called pugnacious in the Bible, right? We should not have in our hearts a sense where, oh, I love to get into a theological fight. 
We should hate to have to do that. And we should defend with grace the Word of God when necessary. I think a third issue that begins to creep in, at least it did in Thyatira, is just simply ignoring biblical roles of men and women. A third way that we risk becoming religiously tolerant is ignoring the biblical roles of men and women. Thyatira, they have this woman Jezebel who becomes a prophetess. She becomes the pastor of the church. We're talking 40 years removed from when Paul wrote 1 Timothy chapter 2, where he said, a woman is not permitted, not allowed to preach on a regular basis, exercising authority as an elder in a congregation uh, over the men in the congregation, because the created order was God made Adam first. Uh, he had all the roles and responsibilities of the leader, the moral head of the, of the household, of the, of the marriage. Then God makes Eve. And Eve is a helper, an encourager, following, supporting. And Satan, when he shows up on the scene, he knows God's roles of headship and submission. He knows God's roles, God-given roles of the leader that Adam is supposed to be. And so he says, let's go the opposite way. I'm going to go after Eve first. And then Eve is the one who eats the fruit first, right? She's the one who falls first. She's the one who sins first. But then God goes to Adam first. God doesn't say, Eve, where are you? God says, Adam, where are you? That's all wrapped up in the created order. And that's where Paul said 40 years before this letter to Thyatira, Paul said, that's why in God's created order, men are called to be the leaders. But if the men give up that position of leadership, then the women will step up into that role. And slowly but surely, by ignoring one aspect of biblical theology, you begin to let the other dominoes fall. A fourth question, are you concerned for others for other slaves of Christ? Are you concerned for other slaves of Christ around you? Are you concerned for those around you? Do you rejoice when you see other people fall in false doctrine, in temptation, in wickedness? Do you look and you go, ha ha, I knew it. They, they got too big, too famous, too powerful. Do you reach out and help people that you see slowly going down an erroneous path? Are you concerned for other people or do you just let them walk their own way and not do something, not go after them and bring them back. And finally, uh, one last question for us regarding religious tolerance. I think this is an important one. Are you a person who is preoccupied with what is new and what is clever? Are you a person who is preoccupied with what is new and what is clever? Another way we could ask it is, do new teachings excite you? Somebody says something, you go, wow, I never heard that before. Somebody says it from the Bible, wow, I never heard that before. Does that make you excited? Or do you have a little bit of a guard that says, why haven't I ever heard that before? If you've been in church for years and you know the truth of God's word and somebody says something that sounds completely different, does it excite you? Or do you, do you say, I need to be on guard for that? We must guard ourselves from the new or the novel in the church doesn't mean that there can't be new insights that are given. That happens every Sunday when Marty's preaching and uh, teaching in Sunday school, right? He gives us new insights all the time. But it's not new doctrine. It's not, I just found out this new doctrine that says God's actually not a trinity. He's actually 17 people. And I'll show you in the Bible. That should raise red flags very quickly. And even if it's a new teaching, it shouldn't make us think, oh, this might be interesting. There are some people that are given to that, though. Their personality, their character. I like new things. 
Religious tolerance. So we have traditionalism, we have religious tolerance. Number three, the third criticism is worldliness. The third criticism is worldliness. Worldliness, not necessarily acting like the world, though that's part of it, but rather just being wrapped up in what the world is all about. You become like the world, not in necessarily a sinful way, but just their desires, their hopes, their dreams, their affections become yours. This is Laodicea. You remember in chapter 3, verse 14, in, uh, if you drop down chapter 3, verse uh, 17, Laodiceans said, I am rich, I have become wealthy, and I have need of nothing. Because of that, they are spiritually dead. They're, they're lukewarm. They're an offense to God. Why did they say those things? Why did they say we're rich? We've become wealthy. We don't need anything. We're self-sufficient. Why had they said that? Because, as Marty was saying this morning in Sunday school, they were such a rich city. They were so wealthy that when that earthquake hit, as we talked about a few weeks ago, when that earthquake hit and leveled their city and Rome said, we'll help you out. We'll send money. They said, we don't even need your money. We're so wealthy. We don't need anybody's help. So they're not thinking spiritually to say we're wealthy spiritually. They're thinking we have all the wealth in the world. We have everything we need. We're self-sufficient. And so Laodicea succumbed to an affluent lifestyle and they didn't even know it. And it just made them useless. So what are some questions to ask our own hearts regarding worldliness? Question number one, do you desire to be a self-sufficient person? Do you desire to be a self-sufficient person where you just don't need anything from anyone? This promotes autonomy where you say, I can do it myself. And that's exactly what Jesus condemned here. He says, you don't even know that you need help because you become so self-sufficient. Now, I'm not saying that we should become needy people with one another, where we just, oh, you just walk into church, lay down on the ground, and say, I need help from everyone. Right? We're not, this isn't promoting neediness. This is promoting spiritual dependence upon God, saying, I've got nothing. We sing it all the time, Rock of Ages. In my hand, I've got nothing in my hand to bring, just clinging to the cross. So would you say that you're striving to be a self-sufficient person, an autonomous person, or... Are you a spiritually dependent person? A second question that we could ask regarding worldliness creeping into our own church. Are, are you anxiously protective of your material things? Are you anxiously protective of your material things? Again, this is not meant to say when you leave this morning on Sunday, just take your keys, throw them to the, some neighbor for your car keys, and just walk home. Right? We're, not, we're not talking about don't guard and be careful of the things that God has given you to be a steward over. But are you anxiously protective of them? I believe that the Laodiceans would have been anxious in their protection of their material things. Their, their 401k was enormous and they don't want anybody to touch that because that gives them that sense of autonomy. That gives them that sense of self-sufficiency. Don't touch my retirement plan. We don't get rewards in heaven for the number of years that we have saved up in our retirement plan, right? Now, again, we need to be righteous in the way we steward God's money. We need to be careful in the way that we think about money. The Proverbs are very clear that a righteous man will give his inheritance to his kids and his kids' kids. So we want to be thinking that direction. But we can so overcorrect to the other side where we just hoard everything. We see needs around us, but we don't meet them because we're hoarding our money. We don't want to give. We don't want to fund missions. We don't want to lavish gifts on others. Wealth is never said to be a bad thing in the Bible. 
it's a dangerous thing when used incorrectly. Um, it, the verse in the Bible that a lot of people misquote is love is the root of all evil. It's not, or uh, money is the root of all evil. That's not true. It's the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So I wouldn't encourage anybody to just live a life of poverty. I would encourage you make as much money as you possibly can and then live on $60,000. Right? Make millions and give all of it away and live on all that you need to live off of. But never trust your money. Never become self-sufficient in your money because your money can go away just like that. So we can become like the world. The world finds their security in money, right? We can become like the world in that way. A third question. Do we tend to forget simple biblical truths? Do we tend, another way we could say it, is to get wrapped up in the quote-unquote deep things of the Bible? Do we hear the gospel and go, yeah, that's kind of for baby believers and it's really boring. I want to move on to better things. If we do that, we'll start sliding into uh, other philosophies, other ideologies, other forms of thinking. Uh, This kind of gets back to that, that new, novel, clever idea. Where we hear things and we go, I like that. I've heard the gospel enough times. That that's very simple. I want deeper realities. I want, I want things that just excite my brain in a, in a better way than these things that I've, I'm used to. A fourth question. How quick are you to repent? How quick are you to repent? We become very worldly when we see sin in our lives, but we coddle it. We make excuses for it. It's like Rosario Butterfield said a few weeks ago, in our sin nature, it's just that little tiger that starts off as this cute little kitten. Oh, it's cute. And then it grows up. We realize it's a tiger, but it's still pretty young and manageable. And so we get a collar and we get a leash and and then it gets bigger and we get a cage instead of saying, whoa, I walked home with a tiger. I need to get rid of this. We start to coddle it. We start to think, I can manage this. One last question for worldliness. And I think that this would hit home, especially in, in America. Um, do you perceive trials as abnormal? The world desires comfort. The world desires luxury. The world desires for everything to go according to plan, no hiccups, no speed bumps. And the Christian church has absolutely bought into this as well. We know it as the prosperity gospel, right? God just wants you to be healthy, wealthy, Never be sick, just have a great life. I would agree he wants you to have a great life, but you have to qualify what a great life means because what a great life means for some people is that the moment that they get saved, their, their family alienates them, and now people around the world, when they get saved and they get baptized, now they are targets to be killed because of the gospel by people who hate the gospel. Our brothers and sisters around the world... They don't really need to hear question number five, right? If I were to say to our brothers and sisters around the world, um, do you perceive trials as abnormal because you might be struggling with worldliness? They would say, trials, that's, that's every day of my life. I'm always living my life under the threat of being killed. I'm always living my life under the threat of persecution. That's why I think for us here in America, I think this becomes a very real struggle. Now, we see the, the cultural evangelical landscape. We see where our world's going. And so I think it would be helpful for us, knowing that things are just getting worse, 
in our country with regard especially to Christianity and to morals, I think we would do well to ask the question, how do we view trials? Do we view them as normal in our lives or abnormal? The Bible would say trials are promised, right? They're promised. James 1, um, don't, don't be sorrowful in these moments, but consider it pure joy when you encounter trials. Not if you happen to fall into trials, it's when you encounter them. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. So we know it's happening. Worldliness. The fourth and final criticism by, by tone as far as what Jesus is saying to these churches. Number one, uh, there's a sense of traditionalism or nominal Christianity. Number two, there's religious tolerance. Number three, this idea of worldliness, just looking like the world, acting like the world, living for what the world lives for. And finally, this all leads to the last point, point number four, unfaithfulness. You could put infidelity if you want to, uh, to say it correctly, but it's being unfaithful to our God. It just, it's walking away from a covenant relationship that we claimed to have had with him and just saying, I want, I want to go somewhere else. This is all the way back in the first letter that we read, Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 with Ephesus. Verse 4, this I have against you that you have left your first love. You made a willful choice to abandon your first love. You made a willful choice. This is more than just apathy. All three of these aspects lead to this fourth point. That's more than just apathy, more than just, I just happen to slide into uh, an apathetic way of living life. No, this is infidelity. A church that loses its first love becomes concentrated on other objects, usually totally okay things, but not the best thing. Maybe a church might be focused on politics or secondary issues of the Bible or known for what it, what it isn't for and what it's against. But only a pure love for the Savior will enable us to hold loosely the things of the world and cling only to Christ. So a couple questions. Warning signs that we're following the path of of unfaithfulness towards God. First question, are you captivated by your own accomplishments? Are you captivated by your own accomplishments? Remember Ephesus, Jesus says, I know all the deeds you're doing, and you're doing an amazing thing in Ephesus. You're doing amazing things in that city but you've left your first love. Why? Because they got so wrapped up in what they are doing that they forgot what God has done. Uh, because we get wrapped up in our own accomplishments, we want to do more, and it just ends up becoming that Mary Martha syndrome where we just start working, 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 and we, we cease to, to kneel and lay down at the feet of Christ and just adore Him. If we don't do that throughout our week, we don't do that as believers, just adoring him. And we just work for him, work for him, work for him, work for him. We are in danger of infidelity against God. We could, there's a, a bunch of other ones. We're running out of time. We, we, we strive for respect from the world. That ends up, um, if we want to be loved by the world, we end up walking away from Christ. I think, I think the biggest one is we just become restless with only Jesus. This is the biggest danger for our church, is that we would become restless with only Christ. This is where infidelity starts, right? Even in a marriage, when you think about infidelity, I, I have my spouse, but uh, I'm, I'm restless with only them. I want somebody else. I want something else. I want a new thing. I want a different thing. We do the exact same thing in our relationship with Christ, where we leave our first love when we say, Jesus is great, but I'm wondering if there's something better out there. I'm wondering if there's something better out there. 
Only a a pure love for the Savior will allow us to let go of everything in this world and say he's all that we need. He's everything that we need. So four criticisms. What do we do with all of these? Let's just wrap it up quickly. Number one, there's no perfect church in a fallen world. Every church has a possibility of containing both the positives and the negatives of these churches in Revelation 2 and 3. But we're promised blessing if we hear, we read, and we understand, and we live according to it. And so that's why I want to take these three weeks to just look at the, the general tone before we move on to chapter 4, which is just going to be glorious as we study chapter 4. But before I move there, let's ask some serious, penetrating heart questions about ourselves and about our church. What do all four of these criticisms that Jesus gives to his churches, what do all four of them have in common? What do all four of them have in common? I would say it this way. They just don't really know Jesus. They don't really know him. If they truly knew who he was, they would treasure him for who he is. They'd value him. They know about him, but they don't know him. They know about him, but they don't know him. That's why they go through motions. That's why they think the world is more appealing. That's why they, what Jesus says in the Bible, that's one thing, but there's other things, other religions we can follow. That's why they become religiously tolerant. That's why they do all the things that they do. They know about Jesus, but they don't love him and know him. So that's the question we have to pose to our own hearts. Do you truly know Jesus? Do you know about him? And that's where your knowledge ends. Or do you know him and love him and pursue him? If you would say honestly this morning, I I know about Jesus, but that's the extent of my relationship with him. I just know about him. Then my friend, today is the day to say, I don't want to just stay at knowing about. I I want to know him. I want a relationship with him. I don't want to just know about him. I want to be in a relationship with him. Today's the day to turn from valuing anything that you value in this life over and above Christ to throw that all away and to say, I just want Jesus. I just want Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you would say, I do value him and I struggle in my valuing. I struggle in my treasuring. I struggle in my cherishing. I know he's better than anything in this world, but I'm struggling to value him. And I would say, brother, sister, you are in the fight. You're in the fight. That's why heaven's going to be amazing. One day we're going to get to a place where we no longer fight to value Christ. We'll just always love and treasure him the way that we should, the way that we know we should. So I would just encourage you with the words from that father in Mark chapter 9 who has the son who's demon-possessed, and he says, can you heal? If you can do anything, Jesus, and Jesus says, if, I can do this. And he says, I believe, help my unbelief. I would say the same thing. If you're here this morning, you say, God, I treasure you, but I don't treasure you the way that I should. Help me with my lack of treasuring. Help help the things of this world to grow strangely dim as I stare into the light and the glory and the beauty of Christ. Father, we thank you so much for just an overview. Thank you for, even as we go through these Um, letters, just a fly-by overview of them. We can remember the words that you said, the words that you spoke to these churches. They come back to our memory. They come back to our hearts. And Father, we confess that we do not love you the way that we should. We know that. That's why we love Jesus, because he loved the Father perfectly. He loved you perfectly. And his perfect record of love has been placed into our account so that it is seen by you, our Heavenly Father, as if we love you perfectly because we have the perfect love of Jesus in our hearts. 
but we want to live it out. We fail every day. And so we confess our failure to you this morning and, and we want to glory in who you are. We want to cherish you, find our satisfaction in you, love you more than anything this world has to offer. Help us to do that now, even as we sing. In Jesus' name.